We're not very good at reasoning like that. We're good at asking, what goes wrong if I do this? But sometimes the consequence of inaction is what kills us. Hello, and welcome back to Bit of a Tangent. I'm Jared, and joining me as always is my very good friend, Jean-Luc. Today, we are doing part two of our series on mental models. In it, we are bringing you the most useful and applicable models that we've encountered in everything that we've read, heard, or seen over the years. Anyone who knows myself and Jean-Luc knows that we are eager devourers of internet content, and so we're eager to share this with you. In part two, we unpack models about Bayesian reasoning, calibration and what it would mean to be well calibrated, and the notion of expected value, or what is sometimes thought of as thinking in bets. We also cover the intuitions behind fat tail distributions and counterfactual reasoning, the notion of inversion and how this relates to the idea of red teaming. Throughout, we'll build up each model with motivating examples and explanations, and we often found ourselves making previously unseen links to other models, and this proved insightful, and I hope this conversation will do the same for you. A quick note, thank you to everyone who has supported us by sharing this podcast. We really do appreciate it. For you, it may just be a click or a tap on your phone, but it does make a big difference and we are always grateful for that. So thank you. Anyway, without further ado, here's the episode of Fit of Attention. So I'm going to move into a general area of models, which you could call tools for thinking, cool. but they're very much about thinking. So some of them are very recognizable, like Occam's Razor, and some are maybe more abstract, and let's dive in. So why don't we start with this general idea of what does it mean to understand your circle of competence? I have a notion of what that would mean, but... I don't know that I would have a more formal definition for you. Do you have something at the top? So this is, I'm sure in this section, at least a lot of these are going to come from Shane Parrish's amazing, mm. fantastic, wonderful, thought-altering blog, Farnham Street. Great. So, But this one in particular is useful, especially when you're trying to apply all these diverse mental models to all of the problems and, and ideas you come across in your life. And what it says is, know where you truly have skill mm. right versus where you just have what what he would call chauffeur knowledge or just a basic understanding of the jargon that could fool you into thinking you truly understand and for investors like warren buffett and charlie munger they are quite particular about the kinds of things they invest in and so like as far as i understand they tend not to invest in like very high tech new domains like biotechnology and the rest because they will often say oh i just i don't know anything about that i, I have no clue how i would evaluate a business based on this new business model mm. so understanding your circle of competence just means knowing when you are even likely to make a better than random guess at you know some idea you know and, and this comes in all the time right 
when you're sitting in the sauna next to someone and sort of talking a bit of shit about the economy and neither of you are economists and neither of you have ever <laughs> taken a course in economics, suddenly maybe a flag should go up and say, why am I wasting my time? But also it's fun. So uh, yes. Okay. I, I see what you mean now. I, I have a different model that's very closely related to that, that I've used quite extensively in my thinking. And I believe it comes from, or one of the, the popularizers of it was Scott Adams, who is the creator of the Dilbert comic strip that many people yep. are probably familiar with. And he was being interviewed by Tim Ferriss. And I think he spoke about this first there. And essentially the idea is the same, except instead of having one circle of competence, imagine that you have a circle of competence for every potential ability you could have. So, you know, for me, my circle of competence in terms of doing double backflips from just standing on the ground is pretty small. Whereas my circle of competence in using the pandas library in an IPython terminal is much larger by comparison. So Scott Adams uses this model and says, well, okay, it's very unlikely that you're going to have a top one percentile size circle in one of these skills, right? You're not, it, it's so unlikely that you're the Michael Jordan of whatever thing it is that you're currently doing. But what's not that unlikely is that you're just like above average, Right? And now, if you just add two skills together, imagine the Venn diagram where those two circles overlap. That overlap is much smaller than either of the circles. Now add a third circle, maybe even a fourth. And that intersection is so small that there's almost no one, if anyone at all, in there. Right? So the way he frames it in his own life is like, Dilbert, like, it's really successful, but it's not that complicated. He's just above average at drawing cartoons, at drawing caricatures of small characters. He's above average at making puns and like witty remarks. And he's above average at knowing about how businesses run and like the bureaucratic administrative lingo. Like just above average in all of those things. But combine all three and he's one of a kind. And if you think about this in the context of your own life or anyone's life, right? This, this, this is incredibly liberating because it means you don't have to be the best at something. Just be the better than average at three or more things. And you'll be in a very small group of, of elite people in whatever that intersection is. Bonus points if you can earn money doing it and be satisfied and enjoy it. And I think that's where potentially some of the, the difficulty comes in. But uh, I think it's definitely something that gives one confidence in oneself, provided you have the creativity to try and make your skills intersect. Nice. All right. What about the idea of counterfactuals and counterfactual thinking? I mean, this is one that gets thrown around quite a lot, and I think it's a favorite of yours. So I think I'll let you take this one and then jump in with a counterfactual. Bam. <laughs> this is the thing, right? When we make predictions about the future, we say, if we implement this economic policy, we expect to see a growth in the economy size of 5%. That's very impressive. And it might even be true, right? We wait five years and in five years time, the economy is 5% bigger, but that's only impressive if in the counterfactual universe where we do not implement this policy, the economy is not in fact 5% bigger. So if implementing this policy does actually not cause a 5% increase, the 5% increase was going to happen in both possible worlds, then what you're essentially saying is it's actually useless. Well, it's not that it's useless. It's just that it's not having the effect that you're claiming it to have. And 
this is very useful when we think about and talk about causality itself. Mm. There are counterfactual models of causality where you say what it means to cause something is in another universe, not doing this means that this result does not happen. So the counterfactual can help us to reason about things that we haven't seen yet and haven't observed. And it's just an important thing to account for instead of the base rate where the thing happens on its own anyway, and we can confuse that as an actual result of some act we've taken. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's pretty closely tied to the idea of many worlds, um, at least in a probabilistic or conceptual sense, right? If you are viewing the possibility of there being many outcomes to any given thing, and then you are sort of delineating the zones wherein some choice you made now resulted in that outcome, and then comparing the size of them and the prospects of them, it, it's a very a very similar approach. In fact, I mean, it's, it's, it's fundamentally derived from the same principles. But I think the core idea of, of this sideline here is thinking about all the possible outcomes one could have for something and making choices accordingly, as opposed to just thinking, like, what will happen? Thinking what else could happen? Because that is a very good way to tie in your multiple hypothesis testing and your ability to protect against cognitive distortions. Let's hit the main event in some sense, and let's talk about Bayesian reasoning, conditional updating, and the idea of calibration and why that idea is so important to rationalists. So what is what is Bayes' theorem? What does it tell us? What does it allow us to do? And how can people actually use it? Because there's two ways of doing this. You just say, oh, well, Bayes' theorem tells us how to optimally update our beliefs based on new evidence. And that's yeah. great to say, but it's kind of like saying entropy talks about the disorder of a system. It doesn't actually, mm. it's not very instructive. Yeah, you're just using using a magic word. Yeah, so what I'm going to do now is derive Bayes' theorem from uh, first principles and the axioms of statistics. So we're going to start with axiom <laughs> No, I, I joke. What we're going to do, I think, is is tease this apart one step at a time. So we'll work on that that first premise, right? So you have frequentist statistics, which is like the kind of statistics most people learn in school, the kind of statistics most people use most of the time. Right, And this just looks at, you take some measurement of the world from some population and you look at like how often does something happen? How often do people get attacked by sharks versus how often do people die in road accidents? And then you go, okay, your chance of dying in a road accident is greater than your chance of dying from a shark attack. And we're, we're assuming that all people are kind of equal in some sense. They are samples are good and, and various other assumptions that we're making. But it's frequent statistics. It looks at frequencies and makes probabilistic assessments based on that. Whereas Bayesian statistics works in a different way. Bayesian statistics looks at probability in the sense of imagining your sample is tying back into this previous idea, many possible outcomes and all the possible outcomes that there could be. And then it tries to assign probabilities or probability ranges to each of those possible outcomes. So why is this different? Well, if you're looking at a scenario that's never happened before, that you have no data on, it's impossible for you to use frequentist statistics to try and figure out how likely something is to happen to you or to succeed or whatever, because it hasn't happened before. There's no frequencies from which you can derive the probabilities. Whereas with Bayesian statistics, you can actually do that. And the real magic source here of Bayesian statistics and Bayes' theorem is twofold, really. Uh, it's it's much more yeah, it's it's a doubly saucy dish, but uh, it's a, your your first <laughs> source is like a, a a wonderful marinara sauce, 
And uh, that is the fact that if you don't know the probability of something, just pick something that seems right to you. Just, like literally just make something up. Like it doesn't actually matter all that much. Like it matters a little bit, but not as much as you think. How likely do you think it is that if you open your curtains right now, there'll be a shark standing outside on the pavement outside of water just waving at you and then it attacks you like yeah you can go yeah i think that's like one percent chance fair enough you could think that's 50 percent chance just pick something okay because that's better than nothing because if with frequent statistics we have nothing but you can now pick something and that doesn't matter all that much right so that's your first source and then your second source is the fact that you can now make that starting that prior probability more like the real probability by collecting information and then updating it. And this is all that like Bayes' rule really does, is you start with some prior probability of what you think based on intuitions, based on some evidence, based on a random guess, if that's all you have. And then what you do is you start collecting evidence as much as you can, and you update that estimate. And the theory shows that over time, that will converge on the true value. So you can do this in cases where we can compare to frequentist statistics. You can do this if you have someone who doesn't know about the stats for shark attacks and they just have to guess and then you start giving them information about how you know these people who are attacked by sharks and all this other information and they slowly update and they will actually converge on the same value that the frequentist statistics show, which is good because it means when we don't have the frequentist statistics, we can still calculate probabilities. Right? So that's the first part of this puzzle. Like That's what Bayes' rule allows you to do. That's what the tools of Bayesian reasoning and inference allow you to do. And you can also do this conditionally, right? So it lets you work in like inverses. So it's like, if you know the probability of one thing and you know the probability of another thing and you know how they're related, then you can say like the probability of one thing given some other thing. And you can chain these things together, right? So now for any belief that you have, that you've applied Bayes' rule to, that you have this prior probability and these updating probabilities, these posteriors, well, now that's just like a node in a network and it's connected to other nodes, Right? So I think this brings us to step two, which you'll probably want to dig into. It's just like, how does this connect into a network of beliefs? And how do we update multiple beliefs using other beliefs? Right. So a key element of thinking better, and I know that you've read the book on this, which is Super Forecasting by Prof. Phil Tedlock, is when we see some new evidence, how much should we change our current beliefs about something? And, and the, the formula just tells us the exact magnitude. But you don't actually often have to break out a calculator and do this. If you do this, you're probably doing something wrong, right? You, you, most of the practical value of this comes from doing it in your head in the sense that you're not using like hard values and you're not doing division and multiplication, really. Maybe in a very low level sense. Anyway, so that's it, right? The reason I say this is highly related to the idea of, of calibration is calibration is this idea that if you say you are 90% confident in something, well, if I gave you 100 statements and you said you were 90% confident in each of them, then 90% of them or 90 of the, those 100 statements should actually be true. And to be well calibrated would mean that if you say you're 90% confident in each of those statements, 90 of them will be true. And if you are poorly calibrated, as most of us are by default, we'll say things like, I'm 99.99% sure, right? Which is what? That's saying that if you gave me 10,000 statements, I would only get one wrong. Mm. So there's a great web application that was built by the 80,000 Hours organization. And they built a little web app where you can practice calibrations. So it asks you a question and then it asks you to give your answer and give your 
90% confidence interval. And you can practice for different confidence intervals. So here's actually a little mental model itself, right? What is a confidence interval? So a confidence interval is, if I say my 90% confidence interval for your age is between the age of 19 and 27, that's what I'm saying is that in 90% of cases, I expect to be right. I expect your age to fall between those two values. So this is a really useful skill to learn. And it's also an idea that comes up all the time in particularly medical research. You're asking this, this piece of data, we think based on those statistics that it actually lies in this range and we are this level of, of confidence in it, hmm. right? And so what this web app will allow you to do is to go and actually practice this calibration exercise where you go and you say, I'm going to practice my 90% level, then you can try 80 or 50 or whatever. So your 50% confidence interval, you want to make it so that in 50% of cases, you actually get the answer right. Mm. And a property of confidence intervals is that the more confident you are, generally the wider the interval. Yeah. So if I wanted to be even more confident than 90%, that your age is somewhere between 19 and 27, I think I said, I would say, well, I'm 99% sure that your age is between zero and 100. I'm even maybe 99.9% .9 sure on that one because I don't know any humans that are below zero, but I can't make it, you know, a hundred percent because there are unborn humans and there are humans who are older than a hundred. They're just quite rare. And if I wanted to make my 50% confidence interval, I could actually narrow it. So I could make my 50% confidence interval something like your age is between 22 and 24. And I would expect to be wrong half the time because I've made it much more specific. Right. And what doing this little practice will allow you to do is actually update in a very Bayesian way because it tells you afterwards, okay, you said you were 90% sure of all of these, but you actually got it right only 80% of the time. Hmm. So now you get to actually make the mental maneuver of updating and saying, what I think is 90% is 80%. Therefore, well, that implies that you should broaden your intervals in general. Yeah. Because the questions range all kinds of categories. And so the reason I love the idea of calibration is I think it's one of the most practical ways to train this ability. Because now, when you're all sitting around the dinner table, when you say, you know, I'm 75% sure of this, it actually means something. Yeah. Because you're well calibrated. As opposed to when most of us say I'm 75% sure, it could literally mean anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's as good as saying, well, I'm guessing here for a lot of people in common usage. Yeah. So this is just something I'm very, very pro and thank you to the 80,000 hours organization for setting up that web app. That that sounds fantastic because you're literally what you're doing there is is you're starting with some priors and then you are getting new information and then you're updating your priors into posteriors and that should in theory converge on the truth. And so over time you should become better and better and better at estimating and closer and closer and closer to reality and being right more often. I mean, that's just like a perfect example, right? And But you get this in real life as well. And it's kind of closely related to the idea that the values that you assign to things, you should like try to be as specific as you can about those things within reason. Saying that you're 75.234% confident in something is usually unhelpful because it gives some illusion that you have way more precise information than you do. But you should be, in theory, willing to bet on things proportionately to your confidence in them. Right. So if you look at the way that, I mean, even sports betting does this, but if you look at the way that something like a prediction market, which is a whole other can of worms works, like you, you, those, those bets scale very rapidly the more you increase your confidence interval. Right. So when you're saying that you're in like 95% sure of something, you should be willing to stake a lot of money on that versus when you're saying you're like 70% sure or 65% sure. So like 
a lot of people might just use those like pretty interchangeably. And uh, I think the great example that Philip Tetlock uses in Super Forecasting is actually talking about Obama being in the war room when there was the potential raid about to take place on Bin Laden's compound, which is like the Zero Dark Thirty story. And he was getting information from his intelligence community advisors from various you know, CIA, NSA, all these different branches that had different secret agents working and different satellites and all these things. And, you know, that he was getting some people go, you know, we're 90% sure it's him. You're getting others going, you know, oh, we're 35% sure it's him, whatever. It's, it's this whole range. And there's a full transcript of this. So you can actually go work out that it was probably, I think it was like, if memory serves, like 70%, let's say, confidence. But what you ended up hearing Obama say was, okay, so it's 50-50. It's like a coin toss. Because he gets all these things. And instead of like actually just summarizing them statistically, he does what most people do, what most good leaders actually have done over the course of history which is just go okay cool like there's enough inconsistency in things that i'm just going to say it's a coin toss or it's 50 50 which Mm. is very far from the truth especially when you're talking about things that are probably normally distributed because they're very fat around the middle and those those tails rapidly slope off right so things things change at an accelerating rate as you move away from the mean but the point being that a lot of the time we kind of treat things as certainties or coin tosses And the truth is that there's a large spectrum of things in between and where exactly you put the needle in that range between 50% and 100% is pretty crucial. And I've got into the habit for a number of good reasons of never, ever, ever assigning anything that even asymptotically (laughs) tends to 100% or 0% chance to anything. Like just fundamentally, because anytime you're doing that, as I think... Yudkowsky put it best it's like you're saying that there's nothing that could happen in any conceivable universe that could convince you otherwise you're saying you're 100% sure or 0% sure what you're saying is there's literally no sequence of events there's no bit of information there's literally nothing that can change your mind it is set in the most concrete of stones transcending even the concept of stone or matter or anything and so obviously that that that's a good start never assign 100% or 0% to anything and be very careful anytime you're saying it's 50% or it's 99% because you you're probably just using that as like an idea that doesn't relate to the fundamental probabilities of it and if you're going ah oh, it's a coin toss it's probably not well here's actually a related mental model that comes from Tyler Cowen which is just an injunction that when you hear yourself assign a probability of less than 40% or greater than 60%, use that as a sort of little mental flag to go, wait, do I really have enough evidence to have updated my beliefs to greater than 60% or to less than 40%? Because his point is just that we're very fond of saying I'm 99% sure, but if you go and work out all the math, you go and chug in the equations in in information theory and you work out how many bits of evidence would you need to become 99% sure of, I mean, put any famous conspiracy theory here. Like how sure are you that NASA did land on the moon? How sure are you that NASA didn't land on the moon? Mm. Right? And if you're saying 99% for one of those, well, you really should start considering how evidence actually works. But if you're saying things like God definitely exists, I'm 99.999% sure. Well, ask yourself, how did you get from 50%? Like it was a coin toss, yes or no? Like where did the evidence lead? Yeah. Then you mentioned so many interesting sub-mental models in there. So I want to I want to run through all of them quickly. So you mentioned this idea of thinking in bets or what you would call an expected value calculation, just exactly. pure probability theory. And then this idea of fat-tailed distributions. And this is so deeply tied in with the idea of a black swan that we have to touch on that 
And whilst we do that, I want to wrap that whole little section on probabilistic thinking up with a sort of catch-all framework that will help you account for each of those things. So how to factor in expected values, how to factor in black swans, how to factor in the average case. Beautiful. So explain a little bit more about why we don't want to just assign a belief. We also want to assign an expected value. And what is an expected value calculation? Right. So expected value is essentially you're just multiplying the value you get from every possible outcome by how likely that outcome is to occur, right? So if we say I'm betting you one of whatever the currency is on this coin flip being heads, right? If it lands heads, then, and and let's say, so we've set the payout as if, if it lands heads, you get two of the currency. And if it lands tails, you get none. The other person keeps it, right? So you're betting one of whatever currency on that one unit, Right, so then your ex- your expected value is going to be one, right? It's going to break. You're going to you're going to break even. If it lands heads, you get two. If it lands tails, you get none. Every time you flip, there's a fifty percent chance of it landing heads or tails. So you multiply the chance by the winning value in the outcome. So fifty percent of two is one. So your expected value on that flip is one. So if you're betting one, if you're paying one to play every time, you're just going to break even. So that's what you would call like a fair game or like a fair bet. And so almost mm. everything in, in the world that you would do at a casino or at a fair or at anything is not going to be a fair game because otherwise the house doesn't win and then it can't afford to do it. So it's usually stacked against your favor. So your expected value is actually sufficiently low in that sense that you're paying more to play than your expected value is given the, the, the probability. There's a great example of this is like the lottery. Your expected value of the lottery is so incredibly low because there's just so many people playing that it's lower than the cost of playing. Almost always, except for one very small period of time somewhere in Massachusetts when they had a windfall thing. But that's a whole nother can of worms to get into and a whole bunch of uh, very intelligent students exploited that very effectively and made quite a bit of money. But that's an aside. So that's expected value. And you can apply this to things more than just a coin toss or a game of roulette or whatever. And you should. And you absolutely should, right? And even if you don't have hard probabilities to go on, the more accurate your estimations are and the more the more able you are to assign almost fixed utility values or even monetary values to your preferences, the better equipped you are to make good decisions. Mm. So, I mean, real-world examples, do you have any that pop to mind? Because I can think of a few. Yeah, well, I think that the reason that expected value is important as a concept is because it helps us as humans overcome some biases and blind spots that I think Kahneman and Tversky and others really show are inherent in us and and, and major flaws, right? And the fact that as humans, we are so addicted to the lottery and to casinos is because there's a quirk of our neural wiring, which makes brains such as ours able to take economic bets with slightly negative expected values and find Mm. this extremely entertaining that's one way to summarize gambling i guess Mm. and the lottery Um, (laughs) but when you can think about expected values you can realize things which are not so intuitive at first glance so for example if you truly do the expected value calculation you should be sort of neutral between having a 10 percent chance of winning 900 dollars right the expected value is 90 right you should be equal between that choice and having a 90 percent chance of winning a hundred dollars because yeah the expected value of that is again 90 percent of 100 is 90 so those are actually equal even though they feel very different and mm. i think in a lot of sort of psychological experiments 
people reason very differently about those two options. The 10% chance of 900 versus the 90% chance of 100, mm. even though they are mathematically equivalent, people reason about them. And there are some very interesting and thoughtful critiques of people who would call that a bias in our thinking, and we can maybe get into those. But this just gets interesting because if you play the same game, but now people lose money with 10% chance versus 90% chance, we have all kinds of biases, which I think we'll get into next episode when we do sort of the psychology mental models. So maybe let's grab the last sort of element in this bucket, which is what is a black swan when we talk about statistical events? And this is going to all tie in with our sort of framework for probabilistic thinking here. Yeah, so just like one last closing idea on that, uh, you should place bets on things and expected values. Uh, I think it was Robin Hansen who mentioned in a podcast recently that you can often find people will be very opinionated about some idea and then you ask them to place a bet on it and then suddenly they start backtracking and caveating and considering other options very elaborately and rapidly and profusely so it's it's a fun experiment to run if someone's saying they're very confident about something mm. or some policy that should be implemented or whatever so that's a good justification he has for prediction markets but uh, we'll come to that some other time that's definitely next episode or the one after <laughs> yeah a good thing a good thing to ask yourself always is when you feel like you're very sure or unsure of something you're like how much would i bet in this and uh, that'll very quickly show you all the ways you could be wrong and make you a lot more cautious. How much would I be willing to lose betting on this? And if you're 95% confident, then you don't expect to lose much, so you should be quite willing. Exactly. That brings us to, yeah, this idea of thin versus fat tails or thick tails with two C's, <laughs> as I like to, to say it myself. Um, oh, yeah, and sure. the idea of like black swans, which is uh, um, from Nassim Taleb, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, okay, first thin and thick tails. So if you imagine a normal Gaussian distribution that most people have seen, the bulk which you've got a, a bulk of, right? We're, we're all familiar with it, right? It's like, it's a distribution over some variable. So if you imagine like human height, right? You've got very few people that are four feet tall. You've got very few people that are seven or eight feet tall. Um, most people are around five or six feet tall, depending where you are in the world. And so you've got this bell curve. So it's like, you, there's a lot more mass around the mean uh, than there is towards the extremes. Now that's a, that's a normal distribution. And there's like a mathematical formula for this, but this can shift somewhat depending on sort of the variance that you, that you might have, right? So you can sort of imagine squashing that normal distribution. Like if you took your hand, if it was made out of like some kind of elastic material, like maybe jelly or rubber or something, and you push down on the top on that center of mass, and you can imagine a lot of the mass from the center moving towards the tails, right? So you're making the center less fat and the tails more fat. Or you can imagine doing the opposite, sticking it down to the surface and then pulling the top so that you're pulling mass away from the tails and towards the center. Right. And what this represents is like sort of how tightly clustered your variable is, the, the values that your variable takes are around the mean. Mm. The important property to notice there is that, yes, you've squished down your distribution, but you haven't necessarily changed the mean. And that's one of the, the key ideas where we now relate this to this concept of black swans. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. So, yeah, this is why I was, I was pausing trying to think of a good... Uh, good comparison there let's let's say right so you take your your normal population distribution of heights and you've got your mean that's probably like you know just short of six feet tall and then the range goes like all the way out to like two feet and ten feet but they're very very thin around those tails now if you imagine 
the distribution of heights of say high jumpers and and this is like you know a full spectrum of, of high jumpers not just professionals or whatever but you, you're going to imagine that not only is it going to be sort of shifted the mean is going to be greater because high jumpers tend to be taller but you're also going to be more tightly clustered around that mean because high jumpers are all benefit from being tall so you're less likely to have a wide spread in those values compared to like a normal population and the same would be true for like people who are generally shorter so maybe like gymnasts for instance right then they're going to be much tightly clustered around their mean as well as that mean being lower or higher than the mean of the general population right so so that gives you a little bit of an idea of of the concept we're getting at but I, I like the sort of squishiness model of you can imagine that distribution as being made of jelly or rubber and you can throw out the mass or pull it in towards the center so right what do we mean by a black swan well a black swan is a black swan right you never see a black swan most swans are white and if you go around just looking and counting all the swans you will never see a black one and so you won't even know that they exist and you will collect statistics about the distribution of swan colors that will entirely be fixed around all swans being white mm. And then when a black swan comes, well, it completely breaks your model and your distribution and everything totally goes to shit, which is essentially the whole premise of Talib's book in a large sense. And just to complete that analogy there, right, is that even if you knew that there was such a thing as a black swan, it's so uncommon. There's, let's say, one black swan, but there's now a hundred white swans. So when you look at the average color of swans, it's so it's a, a, a shade of gray so light that you look at it and you go, oh. The average swan is white and yeah. most swans are white. And as you said, this can lead to some terrible, terrible outcomes because essentially the black swan is the unforeseen, very negative event that can wipe yeah. you out. Yeah, that's the, the context that, that he presents it in the book. Yeah, so that is the, the missing piece there, right? That I think is, is crucial. Right, it's like, so imagine you are the guy who now bets on, or let's say the, the black swan in your village signifies death. And if people see it, they will start like going around you know, raping and pillaging and and burning things down, trying to find who's brought the omen of death to the village, right? And like now you're in the village and there's a whole bunch of white swans and you know that a black swan might exist. It's just really unlikely. But if one does pop up, then it's all hell's going to break loose, right? But if a white swan pops up, no one even notices it. So that's that's sort of the model that Taleb's working with there. But this is all relating back to this idea of thin and thick tails in some way. And um, a nice sort of application of this difference between thin and thick tails is when you're looking at something like retail and how that shifted when we moved to the internet. So in the good old days, you would have, uh, so in the, in, the, in the 1990s and 1980s, you would have retail stores that would sell things like let's say music, right? So you'd have CDs, but they had limited store space and they were paying rent for every square unit of that store space. And every shelf had some cost involved with it, right? Because they have costs of running their store and those costs are pretty high. So the chance of you finding that really niche indie album at that particular store that you've gone into is quite low because they have to cater to the majority of people. They have to be as close to the middle of that distribution as possible and as far away from the tails, mm. right? So if you imagine the distribution of music styles and genres or whatever in that retail store, well, it's a, it's got pretty thin tails, pretty pretty small thin tails, and most of it's clumped around the middle, which is the pop music, right? The mean. Now, when you start moving to iTunes and even after that to streaming music, you have the, the inverse happening. Now your cost of shelf space is reduced to almost nothing because you're just storing digital files on a server somewhere. And digital files that aren't accessed very frequently are even cheaper to store than ones that are. So your cost is also like linked somehow with 
how frequently things are accessed. So now what you have is, is the complete opposite. Now, the majority of your downloads don't come from the near the median. They come from the far ends of the tails, from the really weird niche stuff, right? And in some sense, the amount of stuff that's in the tails, in the far extremes, these really long, wide tails is more than the stuff that's like one standard deviation from the mean, from the center of this distribution. Mm. Because the entire model has changed. So you can imagine like hitting that rubber distribution with a hammer and everything just shoots out into these tails and they accelerate rapidly to like the other end of the room. It's just so much more variety and breadth, but all of that adds up and can hold a large portion, if not the majority of the stuff in that distribution. And knowing the difference between these two things is crucial and seeing how they interplay. And I mean, just as I think this is a great way to actually use a mental model here and demonstrate how these can sort of empower your thinking. But the reason I would posit for the fact that when music is played in a public space or when someone has control of the orcs, you are subject to the tyranny of the average terrible pop song is because if I'm an event organizer and I want to please as many people as possible, because as you said, the distribution is very flat and a lot of the distribution is in the tails, right? You like this weird form of techno jazz and this person likes some crazy dubstep remix of Christmas carols and 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 right each person's choice is quite unique and separate though but on average the average of that whole distribution even though the mass is in the tails the average mm. is still going to be something like taylor swift and justin bieber so if i want to just choose yes. something that satisfies most people well i'm going to play taylor swift and justin bieber regardless of the fact that that's just satisfying the mean but mm. it's because we have to satisfy the mean we can't satisfy each person's individual tail distribution where it's like i might really love dubstep christmas carol remixes but i'm just one person and that's yeah. a very that's very uncommon but most people's preferences are uncommon and so you end up being subject to the tyranny of the mean so this is the this is the perfect thing to tie this together thank you so yeah you've gone you've transitioned from this 1970s 1980s 1990s retail cd store or cassette tape or vinyl store vibe of a very thin tail you know very short tails where they don't have much shelf space they can't have that much variety to this internet age where the tails are virtually infinite mm -hmm. right you've got things like soundcloud as well so you can as long as one not, not even anyone has to download your song but even if one person does it's still like paid for itself in some sense in the model right so you've, you've got almost infinitely long wide filled up tails but yet your mean hasn't really moved it's still pop music that most people don't like and in fact now people even like it less but they just dislike it in different directions and so if you want to do like the least irritation you're still playing the same kind of pop that you would have been playing 20 years ago in the sense that it's still just right down the mainstream. Actually, let me just say one last thing about why black swans are important as a concept. And, and that is just because they don't get easily accounted for in our probabilities. And at least in Taleb's mental model, they have such a huge negative utility, right? Such a huge negative expected value that even though a prob the probability of a black swan is tiny, if it were to happen, it would wipe you out. And so this piece of reasoning goes a long way in people who think about the risks of climate change or artificial intelligence or Nick Bostrom when he thinks about existential risk. As a species, we should be unwilling to tolerate a tiny, tiny, tiny risk of total annihilation because 
the expected value is is negative infinity. It, it, let's just say if, if you value you know but the perpetuation of human lives, then maybe you kind of slot in an infinity. And I'm, I know I'm going to get shit for reasoning on infinities. So even as you say, it's, it's a really big number. It's not an infinity. Fine, whatever. You got me. But Tends even to though it's infinity. really yeah. improbable, it's still worth avoiding it. And so Taleb has some other great mental models like the sort of precautionary principle and the notion of via negativa thinking, which I think is where I want to close this conversation. But before we get there, let's close this loop. And the idea is, if there's the possibility of some event that could completely wipe you out, then your expected value calculation doesn't count anymore. You can't just go, well, the expected value of the average case is X, so do X because I'm going to get expected value of X. If there's still a tiny, tiny, tiny probability of something that would wipe out all possibility of X and all future X, then suddenly you go, oh, it's actually not worth taking action X if somewhere in that distribution hiding, lurking in the shadows is the black swan. I mean, or you can just incorporate that really high negative utility into your expected value function, right? If you're not looking at just like, say, straight up monetary value, if you're looking at some kind of utils or some something more abstract than just money, then you would include that in the calculation. And if it's almost nearly negative infinity, even regardless of how small the probability is, that's going to just swamp all other potential values in that expected value calculation, that utility function that you have. And so you'll find that the best option, if you can avoid it, is to not take that option at all or any option because the chance of it going bad, the chance of the black swan happening is so low, but so terrible that mm. it's not worth doing anything at all, no matter almost no matter how much the potential benefits might be alluring to you. So if you do that that cost benefit analysis, you'll you'll often find that if you are weighing your utility calculations effectively, hmm. definitely it's a weird and unintuitive way of thinking about things, and it's incredibly relevant to thinking about the future of humanity. Hmm. So I actually want to tie this whole like sort of mini section we've just done on probabilistic reasoning, Bayesian reasoning, and and being well calibrated into a little mini checklist that you can use cool. to actually reason like this and, and remember these points so fantastic when you find yourself wanting to reason in some sense probabilistically your first task is is identify the relevant variables here right and assign just some weight right if you're well calibrated then your weights these can be either explicit probabilities or they can be a more implicit feeling but as long as you're well calibrated that's okay for now then for each variable you look and you look at the sort of space of decisions you need to make based on them. And you kind of build a decision tree where you look at, given these variables, I take action X or I don't take action X. And then you calculate the expected payoff for that. But here's the kicker. Here's where the, the checklist, I think, makes a nice and welcome addition is you don't just calculate the expected payoff for the average case, which is how traditional statistics kind of does this. You say, what is my expected payoff if the best case happens, the average case happens, and the worst case happens. And doing that kind of reasoning can help you account for black swans, and it can also account for sort of positive black swans, if, if you can think of that sort of term. And what you're trying to break it down into when you're making any given decision is like, what's the best thing that could happen if I do this? What's the worst thing that could happen if I do this? But here's the kicker, and this gets onto topics like opportunity costs. You want to also ask, what's the best thing that happens if I don't do this? This relates to counterfactuals, which you've already mentioned. And what's the worst thing that happens if I don't do this? 
We're not very good at reasoning like that. We're good at asking, what goes wrong if I do this? But sometimes the consequence of inaction is what kills us, right? This is the person who sits there worrying about how if they start a startup, they could start it, but then two months in, they go bankrupt and they'll be ruined. But what they're not thinking about there is, what happens if I do nothing for two months? Well, maybe you also don't make your rent and you're ruined. So inaction is also an action. And I think making a, a little four quadrant model like that is a nice way to, to really apply this. So I've got one more mental model for us, and then we'll wrap up this section. So the last one is also one that I have almost never seen a good example of, but it's one of the most touted ones out there. And that is this idea mm. of inversion and specifically mathematical inversion. So the story goes that a lot of great mathematicians, and I, I think this was, was a Carlo Rota, but he, he has this maxim, like invert, always invert. So let's get some examples from you of either how you think about and understand the notion to invert your problems, invert your thinking, and an example or two of where you might have used that. Okay, well, for me, this ties in closely with the ideas of, or the idea that goes by many names of adversarial attempts or attacks, red teaming, or breaking into your own home to sort of use the other commonly used uh, metaphor there, right? So the idea of red teaming, I don't, I think it comes from like spec ops type people, but essentially it's like you, you create a team of trusted allies whose goal is to act like they are the enemy and try and defeat you. And in so doing, elucidate all the ways in which your defenses could be improved with no risk to you because it's not actually the enemy. Right. So instead of trying to just think of, oh, how can I defend this? You're inverting and saying, let's attack and see where I'm weak. How could I attack this? That's an inversion. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the classic use of this is in like cryptography and mathematics, which again, it's applied uh, to like banking systems and all over the web to keep things secure. And essentially, all those systems are designed by thinking how you would break systems and then creating things that prevent you from exploiting those attacks. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole community of people, especially in um, internet and network security, who are like penetration testers. Like they're, they're, their job is literally just to try and break things and they get paid by the people who have the thing to break the thing and then tell them how they broke it so that they can defend it from other people with malicious intentions breaking it right mm. so th this is the idea it's like you should break into your own house so that you can figure out how your house is vulnerable to attack um, or in the adversarial sense which i'm kind of just sort of borrowing from i don't know whether the machine learning term borrows from something else it does almost certainly but i'm borrowing it then from there but like a generative adversarial network you've got two neural networks that are fighting against each other trying to catch each other out and they both end up making each other much better um, that's the the core idea and that's an interesting way to think about it. So, I mean, a nice way to do this is to like have a, like almost a Socratic dialogue with someone. So you might not have clear views on some topic or it's an idea that no one's ever come up with before, but then you play back and forth with each other and you challenge each other's ideas and you ask challenging questions to each other. And in so doing, you can dig deeper. And if you're playing off each other in the right way and you're attacking each other's arguments in a debate style, but both working towards some common goal of understanding, not just trouncing each other in a rhetorical sense, you'll end up getting down to some more core truths than you otherwise would have if you were just thinking about it on your own because you're able to better pick holes in each other's arguments. And I think this works at like so many different levels. But for me, when you say inversion, that's what I think. I'm, I think like, you know, don't think how can I make myself happy? Think how can I make myself miserable and then do the opposite? Great yeah. example. CGP Grey has an excellent video on that kind of premise. 
I mean, a related idea here is this idea of the pre-mortem, right? So you want to do some undertaking and we all get into this sort of planning fallacy. We say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to take step X and that's going to have this and that's going to succeed. But the pre-mortem says, assume that whatever you're planning didn't work. Now work backwards and tell me why it wouldn't have worked. Assume you're going to fail and work backwards. And if you think about it, this conversation, and what I love about this is this just shows, this goes to show how related and how Mm. intertwined mental models can be, is at several points in this conversation, we've actually used implicitly this idea of inversion. When we said the idea of kill your ideas, we were inverting. So instead Mm. of trying to prove your ideas right, we're trying to say, find the quickest and simplest way to show that it's wrong and then never spend any more time on it. Another way to think about this is just like identify the worst thing that could go wrong and then work to avoid that. And Claude Shannon actually has a great speech where he details the technique and essentially what he says you should try and do is what we are biased to do, right, is we take positive actions. So we have our little set of premises, our axioms, and we work forwards Mm. to get to the conclusions. But what we should do is imagine that the conclusions themselves were our premises and now we had to work backwards or invert the function that maps premises to conclusions. Invert that and imagine that our conclusions were our starting point and try and work back to the premises. And if you think about it, everyone has at least a little bit of, of experience doing this when if you've done any sort of math class, like when you're learning to do proofs, often it's easier to write the last line of a proof Right? This is, you know, you know, when you're doing anything novel, but when you're learning or practicing, much easier to write the last line and then honestly work backwards and say, well, I could do one step here, one step here, one step here. Because when you know the goal you're headed to, if you invert, then suddenly you can take these very simple one step backward kind of actions. Whereas if you're trying to work forward, then the goal is off in the distance. And so any given step has to traverse this really abstract and murky, foggy space where you're taking a step and you don't actually know if it is in the right direction. Whereas if you invert and you start at that end point, you know that the first step gets to the the conclusion. And now you know that the step before that gets there, right? And I mean, it's perfect that you bring up mathematical proofs because, I mean, at another little zooming in resolution recursive level there, you've got the idea of like proof by contradiction, right? So it's like, if you can't prove a thing, try and disprove it. And when you fail, then you can take that as proof that it is true right or yeah. vice versa right so that, that's actually a legitimate mathematical technique and that's probably why the mathematicians are, are always harping on about things like inversion but uh you were presenting this idea that you should go and sort of you can write the conclusions first and then work back to the the premises that you borrowed from i think you said claude shannon but uh, i'm going to invert on you there and throw in the contrast which also comes with its caveats which is yadkowski has uh, elias yadkowski has written um before saying you shouldn't do motivated reasoning in the sense that if you're starting with your belief and then you work backwards to find the evidence right that's the definition of like motivated reasoning right if you start with my box contains the gold to use his analogy for the people who get the reference and then work backwards and try and make the the evidence appear such that you can justify saying that you are you are doing something wrong intellectually Mm. and epistemologically right so a prime example of this is people who don't want to believe something like humans are affecting the climate through the use of fossil fuels amongst other things right and so they start with humans aren't doing that and then they work backwards and try and create the evidence and create the inferential steps that would justify that and then go cherry pick some examples Mm. that then allow them to run the tape the other way so yes it's an interesting technique and it's a useful technique and many mental models are 
but they all come with caveats. Exactly. They can all be misused and they can all be abused. So sometimes, here's another level of inversion, sometimes invert the mental model and see what happens and you might just catch yourself having found an edge case for the mental model or having found that the mental model is not useful. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect note to end on, right? And and you can even link that into some of the other mental models we've invoked today, like being comfortable with uncertainty, realizing that you'll have contradictory beliefs and trying to reconcile them, but also realizing that you know, the scope, or to use a tip from earlier, the circle of competence for this model is maybe more in trying to reach counterintuitive conclusions, right, where you don't know the set of internal steps, but you are actually honestly starting out with a, a true desire to know, as Yetkowski would put it, mm. yeah, and, and knowing about motivated reasoning. And that's actually a great segue into the fact that part two of this will be on a bunch of these sort of systematic psychological, both biases and tricks that we can use to most optimize our decisions, our living and what it means to have a good, productive, and thoughtful existence. Yeah, I think I think we're going to get some serious shit from intellectual people for this, though, because we're doing things in the wrong order in the sense that we're teaching people how to shoot before we teach them not to shoot people. <laughs> we're, doing, we're teaching people all the, the, the powerful tools before we're teaching them how to use them responsibly and how to be careful of misusing them. Ah, we're so, you know, fucking along the way. We're, we're, Cow cowboy epistemologists, right? Here. <laughs> cowboy epistemologists. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeehaw. Uh, I think, um, I think an important note to caveat everything we've said with is like, we like these mental models. We've found them useful. We've found them interesting. And obviously, the people who've propagated them to us in the first place have too, and so on down the recursive tree. But test them out, right? Like, don't just, don't just take our word for it, like test them out, see if they're valid, challenge them, let them go to battle against each other, right? Apply them recursively to one another. Yeah. Invert them, do adversarial attacks on them, do, do everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, if you, if you have challenges to these, if you have better versions of these models, if you have anything that you think would improve this conversation or these ideas we've put out there, and if you want to get in touch, please do you, uh, you know, details are all found in the show notes and at the end of the show, they get mentioned again. Get in touch by writing, by voice, uh, on Twitter, however you feel. But yeah, let us know and challenge us. If you think these aren't valid or if you know any cases that we're overlooking that render these mental models absolutely useless or even harmful, like we want to know about mm -hmm. that because then we get to update them, right? If, we, if we're going to be good Bayesian agents, then we're going to update to any new evidence we get and we're going to make our models of reality as accurate as possible and as useful in making good decisions as possible. So yeah, that's a service to us, to yourself, to everyone. If you challenge the models, test them out and review them constantly. Yeah. Well, thank you for that note. And I hope everyone listening maybe picks out a favorite and, and really tries it this week. And we will have more of this for you in the coming weeks. And we hope you like it. And it has been a pleasure, sir. So thank you for this. Thank you very much. All right. Talk to you next time. Until next time. Well, okay. We're going to leave that there for this week. We will have part three for you in a week's time. Fingers crossed. I hope you enjoyed this and that you will really try some of these out. As always, you can check out the show notes for links to the things we discussed. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at PodTangent. And again, I 
implore you, if you know of a friend that would benefit from an idea that we discussed here or who is struggling with an important decision, if you think this would help them, then send it along. Anyway, with that, I will leave this here and thank you for listening.